Well, welcome to you as we continue our journey through the Word of God. Hope you've got your Bibles all ready to go and uh, uh, looking forward to continuing uh, today to look at another psalm. I love the psalms. I just think they're just, uh, they contain so much gold. And uh, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 6. Now, before we get into that, just a reminder, uh, please uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards, my Facebook page, Anthony P. Richards, my Instagram, AP Richards. And if you're watching me every day, you probably, uh, you know, you've, you've got it all down. But the, the reason I want you to understand, I'm not trying to build a following or a fan club. What I'm trying to do is allow you to share these and for, for, for the truth of the word of God really to spread throughout all the world. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this for views. I'm doing this for people. And I'm doing it uh, as, as a pastor and doing this because God has put this on me uh, to do. And uh, I love doing it. But I need your help in sharing it. Very, very simple. I can't do that all by myself. Uh, so please go ahead and do that. Okay, let's look at Psalm 6. Now, if you've watched some of my other videos on Psalms, um, I have given you a little bit of a tip on, on how to read Psalms, um, individual Psalms, and to read them in context by doing something which is this. Reading the last verse of the psalm, then going back and reading the whole psalm again. And what it does is it gives you a context for where we're headed. And, uh, because, and, and this psalm is a classic example of that, of where that method actually really helps us. Because the title of this, uh, this psalm uh, it says, To the chief musician with stringed instruments, on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. This is about having a confident answer when you are in the middle of making an agonized plea to God. It, it's about having faith in a time of distress. So in, in order for us to understand where David ends up, let's read uh, the very, first, uh, very last verse in Psalm 6, which is verse 10. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. So you can see the posture that David arrives at by the time he gets to the end of this psalm. David was a man who had messed up and he knew that he had messed up and he knew that he actually deserved God's chastising as he was writing this. And he wanted to talk to God about it. He didn't want to try and talk God out of punishing him or chastising him. He just wanted to have a conversation with God because he knew that what he'd done was wrong. So he opens up, O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot, hot displeasure. Um, we don't know what the occasion of sin was that David had committed. But because of his sin, David sensed that he was, he was about to uh, come under the rebuke of God. So he calls out to God to lighten the chastisement. Now, there may be times when we believed we are chastened by God's hand, when actually we're not. It's just our own sowing and reaping. We just did something stupid and had nothing to do with God whatsoever. And we're like, well, God's just chastising me. No, it could be that you were just stupid. Um, but nevertheless, there are times when the Lord does chasten his children because he's our father. He says, 
please don't chasten me in your hot displeasure. We know that God's chastening hand is not primarily a mark of his displeasure, but it is a mark of adoption. That's what you do to children. Hebrews 12, 7 makes it clear that chastening is evidence of our adoption. Uh, Hebrews 12, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as if you were his son. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? So when God corrects us, it doesn't feel pleasant, it doesn't feel good, but it is good and it is for good. Now, let's talk about anger and hot displeasure. Uh, you have to remember, David is writing this before the finished work of Jesus on the cross and resurrection. So David had less certainty about his standing with God than what you and I do. And on this side of the cross, we look back, we know that all the anger God has towards us was poured out, his wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. So God chastens the believer out of correcting love and not out of anger. Okay, This is why we have to read the Old Testament in the light of what happened with Jesus in the New Testament. The Old Testament doesn't become irrelevant though. Okay, it's not like, well, I only like reading the Old No, no. The Old Testament becomes more relevant the more you get to know Jesus. Because it shows us the difference that Jesus actually made. Verse 2. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. Um. Now, David knew the trial of physical weakness and pain, okay? Um, and in the middle of this kind of chastisement, he cries out to God for mercy. Spurgeon says this, So we may pray that the chastisements of our gracious God, if they may not be entirely removed, may at least be sweetened by the consciousness they are, they are not in anger, but in his dear covenant love. Ah. Okay, there we go. Uh, my soul, sorry, my, I, I read the beginning of verse three before, but he says, my soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? This is, a, this is an interesting verse, really. Um, my soul is greatly troubled. David knew the trial of both physical pain and spiritual weakness and pain. Um, the difficulty of these trials is what drove David to actually seek mercy from God in the first place. The trials of both our body and our soul, that they're amplified by our sense of God's anger and chastisement against us. And that's no different for you and for me as it was for David. When we're not confident in God's love and his assistance in the small trials, that's when it starts to feel unbearable, when we go through big ones. Um, but that's not how we're meant to live. Uh, David says, how long? Guzik says this, David sensed that he was under the chastisement of God, but he still knew that he should ask God to shorten the length of the trial. There is a place for humble resignation to chastisement, but God wants us to yearn for higher ground and to use that yearning as a motivation to seek God and to get things right with the Lord. 
See, David seems to kind of like cringe a little bit uh, under the result of his own sin. And more than the actual sin himself, he's like more concerned about the result of his sin than actually what he did to sin. And uh, ideally, we should all be very grieved by whatever sin we commit. But there is something to be said for confession and humility for the sake of the result of our sins. Verse 4. Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. Uh, in his agony, David pleads for deliverance, but on the grounds of God's mercy, not his own righteousness. David knew that the Lord's chastisement was righteous. It was, it was due to him. But he also knew that God was rich in mercy, and he's a God who can withhold punishment if he so chooses. And the plea return here also shows that David actually felt a little distant from God when he wrote this. That's part of the agony of trials, is that we can, we can start to feel distant and far away from God. And when we sense that God is near us, then we all of a sudden feel invincible. We feel like we've got, we can face anything. But whenever we feel that God's starting to get a little distant, uh, that's when we become weak and we start, oh, trials really start to mess with us. Save me for your mercy's sake. The note of confession of sin is not strong in, in this psalm, but it's not absent. The fact that David appeals to the mercy of God for deliverance is evidence that he's actually aware that he doesn't deserve it in the first place. Uh, Derek Kidner, David's conscience is uneasy and he must appeal to grace to temper the discipline he knows he deserves. Verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? It would be wrong to take these agonized words of David as evidence that there is no life beyond this current life. See, the Old Testament has a, a shadowy understanding of the world beyond compared to what we have. Sometimes it shows a clear confidence in the Old Testament, like Job chapter 19, and sometimes it has the uncertainty that David shows here. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2 verse 10 says that Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the understanding of the afterlife was, was kind of cloudy at best in the Old Testament, but Jesus let us know more about heaven and hell than anybody else ever was going to and anybody else could. Jesus could do this because he had firsthand knowledge of the world beyond, okay? So that's why Jesus was the one who was able to bring life and immortality to light through the gospel message, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. David's point here in the Old Testament isn't to present some comprehensive theology about the afterlife. He's in agony. He's fearing for his life. And he knows he can remember God and give him thanks now. He doesn't have, he doesn't have the same certainty about the world beyond. So he asks God, listen, I need you to act now according to your certainty. Um, Derek Kidner. At rare moments, the Psalms have glimpses of rescue from Sheol, Hades, uh, the place where, where dead people go who don't know God. In terms that suggest resurrection or a translation like that of Enoch 
or Elijah. So th this is one of those times where, where the Old Testament's crying out, the writer of, of, of an Old Testament passage crying out, knowing there's something where we're going to be rescued, but not quite sure how it's going to happen. We don't live in that. That is not the state that we live in, but it helps us understand the nature of David writing these very words when he didn't have the same surety than you and I have. So how much more should we read these words with the surety of our salvation and our eternal place with our Heavenly Father? Verse 6, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. I love the, the imagery in this is so deep. It's so real. It's amazing. He says, I'm weary with groaning. God's chastising hand was heavy upon David. Uh, his life seemed to be nothing but tears and misery. And David's trial has three different components. He felt God was angry with him. He lacked a sense of God's presence and he couldn't sleep at night. All night I make my bed swim. Uh, this is a very good example of a poetic exaggeration. David didn't want us to believe that he's actually, his bed was floating in a pool of tears, literally in his room. Uh, but because this is poetic literature, we understand it according to its literary context. This understands the Bible literary, literally, according to its literal context. Okay, verse 7, my eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. David's, Spurgeon says this, David's eyes were red and sore from all the tears and lack of sleep. As an old man's eye grows dim with years, so says David, my eye is grown red and feeble through weeping. And he says all this, it grows old because of all my enemies. David is brought so low that his enemies no longer spur him to try and even think that he can seize victory. He, he basically seems depressed and discouraged. And there's just, at this point, there's just no way. There's no way. But remember we read the last verse? So we know where we're going to get to. Okay. This is why I, I want you to understand the journey of a Christian life. It's not all just looking at the, from the mountaintops. It's walking through the valleys of the shadow of death, climbing the mountains, being held up by an eagle's wings. It's, it, it's all the seasons that are part of our lives. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity and sin. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication, my me supplying my request to him. The Lord will receive my prayer. That's a, now we're getting definitive in a positive way. Um, it may be that the sin that led David into this chastisement was something to do with an association with the ungodly that he knew he shouldn't have had, which is no different than you and me. Uh, let, me put that into, let me put that into terms. You're a Christian. You love Jesus. You go to church every Sunday. You're in a life group. You're part of, you know, like, like missions. Uh, but you go to a work party and you get drunk. And you say things that you know you shouldn't say. And you do things you know you shouldn't do. And you had an association with the ungodly that you know you shouldn't have had. Maybe it was something like that. 
Here we see David acting consistently with his change of heart. And he's telling all these ungodly associates, you've got to get away from me. See, it's important for us to separate from ungodly associations. It doesn't mean don't go to the work party. It means when you go, you don't drink anymore. And if you can't, then you don't go. And if you're going to go and you're the only sober person and everybody else is get drunk, don't go. Uh, we see here uh, a real, real life example that's, that's, that we're still troubled with. 3,000 years after David wrote this, J. Edwin Orr describes some of the work among new converts uh, in Halifax during the Second Great Awakening in Britain. And I want to read to you what he said. Um, this is going back 100 years. Among them was a boxer who had just won a money prize and a belt. A crowd of his erstwhile companions stood outside the hall in order to ridicule him. And they hailed the converted boxer with a shout, he's getting converted. What about that belt? Thou'lt either have to fight for it or give it up. And the boxer retorted, I'll both give it up and I'll give you up. If you won't go with me to heaven, I will not go with you to hell. And he gave them the belt, but persuaded some of them to accompany him to the services at church, where another was converted, and he then set busily working for the Lord. You've got to draw the line in the sand. David knew it. I know it. You know it. The Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. David ends this psalm on a note of incredible confidence. He made his agonized cry to God and God heard him. See, weeping has a voice before God. It isn't that God is concerned or even impressed. God's not impressed by our emotional displays because he knows what's really going on in our heart. He knows if we're faking it or not. But a passionate heart pleases God. David was not afraid to cry before the Lord and God honored the voice of his weeping. Now, I love this quote that I'm about to read to you from Spurgeon. Is it not sweet to believe that our tears are understood even when our words fail? Let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers. That should be a new hashtag, liquid prayers. How many liquid prayers do you pray through your sheer tears of genuine passion for the things of God? Genuine passion for repentance in your life of the things you've done wrong. Genuine passion to fulfill every calling that God has for those who are broken around you and right now do not have an eternal hope of salvation. Verse 10. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. David knows that when God receives his prayer, it's going to be trouble for his enemy. David now sees that his temporary agony and his temporary trouble is going to give way to permanent agony and permanent trouble for his enemies. So what do I observe from this today? When I mess up, it's appropriate to go straight to God and say, I'm sorry, I know I messed up. I know I deserve the punishment, but I'm asking for your mercy. Second observation, we all need more liquid prayers. 
Third observation, if you're going through a hard time of your own making, I wanna pray for you right now. I wanna pray for you because the Bible says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you the difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation is when the devil comes to you and says, look, you did it again. I told you you're never going to escape. Why do you bother trying? You're always going to be a loser. You're always going to give in to that sin. Why don't you just accept it? There's no hope. That's condemnation. Condemnation is, and you call yourself a Christian? Yeah, good one. Good one. Yeah, yeah. You're no more a Christian than that rock over there. That's condemnation. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit. It says, hey, don't, don't, don't get drunk anymore. Don't, it's not my best for your life. Don't hang out with those people anymore. You need to cut them out of your life because they're dragging you down. I know you've got good intentions. And I want you to reach those who don't know me. But those people, you've already sowed my message and they've rejected it. And now they're just bringing you down. So, you, so you've got to cut them out. You've got to move on because I've got greater things ahead for you. Conviction is, hey, careful of the things that come out of your mouth. Don't, make sure the things that come out of your mouth glorify me. That, that what you just said, that doesn't glorify me. So you need to stop it. Why? Because I've got greater things for you. I've got greater th words to put in your mouth. Words that are going to change people's eternity. See, that's conviction. Conviction is always associated with pointing out things that we need to stop because there is hope for what God wants to do in our life. Condemnation never involves hope. Conviction always does. One is false guilt, one is true guilt. You and I need to live with the true conviction of the Holy Spirit. So I wanna pray for your conviction right now. I wanna pray for you if you're going through a hard time of your own making that you would not feel condemned, but you would feel convicted. Heavenly Father, I pray Lord for every person just watching this right now. I pray, God, that you would just spur them in their spirit. Lift them up, Lord, right now. And God, if, if there is conviction of behaviors that need to change, God, I pray, Lord, make it specific. Lord, I pray that there would be no general condemnation, that they're just useless, that they've got no hope. But God, there would be very specific encouragement of who they are in Christ and very specific conviction about things they need to change. Give them the power to change it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God, let them stand on the promises of that word yet again. Let it be a daily, a daily statement, Lord, in their life that God, that they can beat the depression that they are fighting against through Christ who strengthens me. They can beat Lord, that, that habitual sin that they keep falling into, they can do it. How? Through Christ who strengthens me. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would just allow them right now, God, to know that no matter what enemies seem to come against them to conspire, that God, that you are greater than any of their enemies and that their enemies will pay a price to you and that vengeance is yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.